Turn to Romans 8, please. I told Vicki that message pertains very well to today's, that song pertains very well to today's message. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again to a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. To those fathers, I wish happy Father's Day, as well as to all to whom that pertains in every single way. Today, hyper-conquerors through him who loves us. Hyper-conquerors. Word used once in all the scripture, huper nikao. Hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. And before we get started, I, I do this once every 10 years or so, actually recommend a movie. So many get such press that are actually kind of idiotic fare. But The Professor and the Madman is well worth seeing. Because of the theme of redemption and love, it's a script that Mel Gibson had for 17 years and was only now able to get it to the screen. It stars him and... Sean Penn, talk about two ends of a spectrum. But it's a very wonderful film. In fact, I never thought I'd hear the word salvation for all in a movie, a feature film, but you hear it there. And once some of you have seen it, I'll show you there's one line that I have a little qualification for. And, but I do recommend it. It's pretty hard-hitting, and it has a lot to do with the word, the word. So if you don't like it, I'm not going to pay for it. I mean, I, I've, I've told people, if you don't like this, I'll, I'll pay for the movie. But I'm not going to do that when I announce it to a couple hundred people. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 36. will be where we land pretty soon. John the Baptizer's testimony, spoken of in John 1.19, is that Jesus is the Son of God in 134, and that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the first chapter also of John 1.29 and again in 36. But in John 5.32-34, in Jerusalem, and to those men, the Jerusalem leadership, who were seeking a way to kill him, Jesus said this. This is John five thirty-two to 34. There is another who testifies about me. I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. And he says to these men, you sent envoys to John. And he testified to the truth. Not that I depend on human testimony. Nevertheless, he says, I'm saying these things that you may be saved. John 5.18, he's speaking to men who sought to kill him, sought ways to do it, and were committed to it. I'm saying these things that you may be saved. 
Jesus said this to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, to those whose explicit intent was to kill him. Both John 5.18 and 8.37 testify to this. The testimony that God gives about his son is the gospel of God about his son, which is Romans, what Romans has been all about. It is the gospel of God about his son, who is the heir of all things, and in whom all things are to be savingly summarized. Then on the feast of Hanukkah, in the winter in Jerusalem, John 10.22 puts it there. These same leaders took up stones to kill him for blasphemy. John 10.31, because in their words, you being a man are making yourself out to be equal with God. To that accusation, Jesus replied in John 10.34, Isn't it written in your law? I said, you are God's. The Hebrew from this Psalm 82.6 that he cites, you are Elohim. The Greek says theoi. Is it not written in your law? Your Bible. I said you are God's. And in John 10.35 Jesus says. If he called those whom the word of God came. If he called those to whom the word of God came. God's. And the scripture cannot be abolished Jesus said. Then are you telling the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world that he's a blasphemer because I said I am the Son of God? Now this passage cited by Jesus, Psalm 82, 6a, goes on to say in Psalm 82, 6b to 7, and they, he would have assumed that they would have known this, he goes on to say, you are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like men and fall like any other prince. He's addressing these Elohim as suprahuman beings, suprahuman beings. And he says, his word comes to them. And he says, but you will die like men. And fall like any human prince would fall. Now if we pair this with 1 Peter 4.6. In which it says. Those who are judged according to men in the flesh. So that they would live according to God by the spirit. To the rebellious Elohim. The suprahuman beings. That his word came. His word came to save them. That you may be saved is addressed then to the Jerusalem leadership and to those called gods or Elohim who rebelled against God. So what Bernard Lonergan wrote is eminently true. And this is what he said. 
the Son of God became man for the orderly communication of God's friendship to his enemies. That is profound, and it sort of summarizes the message in Romans. The Son of God became man for the orderly communication of God's friendship to his enemies. Now, these enemies are not only human ones, but also suprahuman powers whom Yahweh called gods, Elohim. God judged these gods who rebelled in order to save them. This is what the German word Aufheben conveys, a unique word, Aufheben. There's no such word in the English, no such word is conveyed in the English, and it conveys a salvation through destruction. Moreover, if they die like men, these are suprahuman creatures, if they die like men, then they can be justified like men. The word of God comes to those whom God intends to save and only to those whom God intends to save. The word of God, capital W-O-R-D, the word of God made flesh, comes to save the world. In fact, God's word conveyed is salvation. His word itself is a saving power. And it sounds a little bit like Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it's experienced as such by those in whom it awakens faith. Experienced as salvation in some degree by those in whom it awakens faith. Called those who believe. For God is the savior of all human beings, especially of those who believe, but as is always noted, not exclusively. 1 Timothy 4.10. His word is experienced as salvation, as life and joy and freedom and peace in the Holy Spirit. The communication of the word to the world by the Father is the communication of peace out of strife, of life out of death, of sanctification out of sin, of friendship out of enmity. My words, said Jesus, are spirit and they are life. Jesus is not just a living soul as the first Adam was. The first man, Adam, was a living soul. The second man, the Lord from heaven, is a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Now, 
What's the point that I'm making? The point that I'm making by juxtaposing the two passages we related to today, especially John 5.34 and then John 10.34, is to show that the intention of God in sending his word is to save. Whether the salvation be for the human enemies who intend to kill him or for the supernatural powers who seek to kill him through their human puppets. I believe that Lonergan was precisely correct when he said the Son of God became man for the orderly communication of God's friendship to his enemies. Jesus became a life-giving spirit in whom all are made alive because he took the way of the cross, which led inexorably to his resurrection from the dead. Now, in the Adamic ontology, we are living souls. We may even live for ourselves. We live to ourselves. But in Christ, we too become life-giving spirits. We communicate life, minister grace. We are counseled to take the same way that he took, Jesus took, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus, who acted in such a way. Again, we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, who acted in such a way that God could communicate his friendship to his enemies. And reconcile all things and all beings in the heavens and the earth by the blood of his cross. God did not spare his son. The son whom he eternally begot and was eternally begotten by the father. He did not spare his own and his only son. And God does not spare those who are joined to him. By the Spirit, he does not spare us from the agona, the agony of the clash of the ages. We are enrolled in adversity university for the time being. For the time being, we are enrolled in adversity university. What Philip Ziegler wrote in Militant Grace also pertains here, and I've been kind of holding this quote for some time. He says this, the trials of affliction, distress, persecution, hunger, nakedness, peril, and the sword. A list perhaps reflecting Paul's own experiences, perhaps recalling those of Christ himself, or else reiterating a stereotyped antique catalog of tribulations are all too well known to the churches in Rome, for they are consequences of the violent reflexes of the age that is passing away. Please note that. They are the consequences of the violent reflexes of the age that is passing away. A drowning man will fight you if you're trying to save him. That's not him. That was me. I just observed that. 
He goes on to say, whatever Christ's kingship entails, it does not insulate the Christian community from the agony of the clash of the ages. Neither is the existence of such distress a mark of divine disfavor, as might anxiously be thought. Rather, Paul stresses that such sufferings are truly for the sake of the God of the gospel. Verse 36 of Romans 8. They are the mark of a faith conformed to Christ, who was himself delivered over to death. Now, Paul, this is me now. The Paul speaks of this in Philippians 1.29 as well. Further persuading his readers that suffering is not a mark of divine disfavor. In fact, there he says that suffering is granted to us by the same grace of God that granted us faith. It has been given to us to believe. It has been given to us to suffer for his sake. For his sake means because of our association with him, our identification with him, and because our Lord, the Christ, suffered to enter into his glory. This is grace from the God of all grace, who having perfected the author of our salvation through sufferings, in Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 5.8, does the same for us who are among the many sons whom he leads to glorification. Peter chimes in with this, and the God of all grace after you have suffered a little, will perfect you. The words of Paul to Timothy come to mind. Be inured to difficulty. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. When I read this list, I read, read it in a way that kind of brought a little tinge of shame. Because though the Romans knew some of these things, Americans don't know too much about it unless they've been in combat or in depredation or deprivations. True hardships. Again, Peter chimes in, and the God of all grace, after you have suffered a little, will perfect you. First Peter 5.10. What's true for the master is true for his disciples. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Don't be surprised, siblings, if the world hates you. That's 1 John 3, 1 and 3.13. The Father did not spare his Son, neither does he shield us from the evils that exist in this present evil age, which is the all day long of Psalm 44.22. Psalm 44.22 is the last that we will quote from the Old Testament in Romans. 
It's the LXX, or the Greek translation as 43, 23. And that exact, literally, word for word, letter for letter, is transposed or inserted right into Romans 8.36 in a parenthesis, an important parenthesis. Parentheses don't mean unimportant. Sometimes they are very important. It's presented right into Romans 8.36, with the exception of one tiny letter in the Greek. But the same meaning is conveyed. Romans 8.36. As it is written, because of you, speaking to Yahweh, to the Lord, because of you, I would translate this in a kind of expanded translation, I would say, because of our association and identify our identification with you, Lord, Lord Jesus. We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, God did not spare his own son. Romans 8.32 And he does not spare us from the adversities of this age because we are part of the extension of the mission of the Son of God who is the Word. And who is the suffering servant in this world. We are enlisted moreover in the divine mission of the spirit. Presently ongoing. And we are to wield the sword of the spirit. In combat not with flesh and blood enemies. But with powers of evil in the heavenly spheres. Powers that have yet to be transformed into a supreme good. Before the eyes of all human beings. Now Jesus was the lamb who was willingly led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53 7. The slaughtered lamb who took away the sin of the world. And who was raised to stand in the presence of God for us. So we are of that which Zechariah called. And this is extremely important. We end with Zechariah, also notes on Zechariah. 11.4 and 11.7 referred to there as the flock of slaughter. The flock of slaughter. As the lamb, Jesus was taken from the flock of slaughter. We are the flock of slaughter. All day long, we are being put to death. But this death that we're being put to is the dying of the Lord Jesus, which we bear in our mortal bodies, so that the life of Jesus may be conveyed to others. 2 Corinthians 4.10 and 11. Psalm 43.23 of the Septuagint, which is 44.22 in your English Bibles, is a word for word and literally installed with the exception, as I said before, of a single letter, the A at the end of Henneke is E-N in Romans. So Psalm 43.23 in the Septuagint, which is 44.22 in the English translation, 
is inserted directly into Romans 8.36. Welcome to Adversity University, which involves the necessary tribulation that precedes the consummation of the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22, but John 16.33. Through much tribulation you will enter into the kingdom of God, And Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But have high morale. I have overcome this world. We've been appointed to this, says 1 Thessalonians 3.3. Appointed for this. Romans 8.36 then, as it is written, because of our identification and association with you, Lord Jesus, we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Again, Paul quotes this directly in order to make explicit that we are not spared adversity in this age and that these adversities are potentially physically fatal. But this verse also inserted between the question in 835 and the answer in 837. Again, this verse is strategically inserted between the question in 835 and the answer in 837. 835, the question, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? We've never been to the grocery store and seen the shelves all empty. That's hunger. War. With our grandsons, Pam and I were able to take at least three hours on the auto tour and stop at all the monuments in Gettysburg. War. We saw Devil's Den, the slaughter pen, in many places where men were slaughtered on our soil in Pennsylvania. 600,000 in that tearing apart war. More than 600,000. We haven't seen it here. There are political movements today that violate the wisdom of a proverb of the Kikuyu tribe in Kenya, Africa, which I always note, if you're going to destroy a present order, be sure that you replace it with something of value. And therefore, the book by Robert Ruark, Something of Value, The book was quite good. The movie starring Rock Hudson and Sidney Poitier was so-so. But the proverb is correct. There are political movements in our nation today that are going to overthrow a particular order, but they have nothing of value to replace it with. The result will be a kind of mob rule, which is worse than any kind of tyranny. For when the mob rules, 
the reduction is to that of animal instinct. And all order is gone. It is then when we might experience, there's also a movement called ABC. It's a movement called anything but Christianity. Islam, okay. Buddhism, okay. Hinduism, anything but Christianity. Militant atheism. So there is a move to topple the order that has existed since the founding of this nation, which is no way in any shape or form a perfect order. But you better have something to replace it with. And those who are calling for this downfall have nothing of value to replace it with. In a day in which women refer to an infant as their body, we are headed for some very terrible hardships in this country. The fact that there is no eternal hell does not take away from the fact that there are historical judgments on nations. And history is littered with nations who tried to overcome one order but had nothing of value to replace it with. I'm only saying that to say that we may be facing some hardships that we're unused to, unaccustomed to. And we now have a population that is not ready for such things. Social media is riddled with the struggle is so real. What's the struggle? Somebody broke up with you. You lost a job. You lost popularity. You lost a friend. Two less people like you. Well, Jeremiah said, if you can't run with the foot soldiers, what in the world are you going to do when the cavalry comes? And I would say, what are you going to do when the cavalry comes with the artillery? Part of the briefing that happens in a local assembly is a preparation for hyper-conquering in all these things. That you may be strengthened with might in the inner man, the inner person, and give God glory through come what may. That's just a, let's just call that a pastoral pastoral interlude. The question, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation that we may experience and do in some measure, anguish, the anguish of the clash of two ages, you can't avoid that, and you won't get out of here without experiencing it. Persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? The answer in 837 is no. No. In all these things, we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. We hyper-conquer through him who loved us because He who loved us not only conquered evil, but transformed evil into a supreme good by the wise and just, the mysterious and magnificent law of the cross. We participate with Jesus in his dying, says 2 Corinthians 4.10. We participate with Jesus in his dying 
a message highly unfamiliar to the Christians in the United States. And we also participate with him in his resurrection and life and livingness. We are part of the flock of slaughter, those of us in whom he has awakened faith. The world is asleep. Christendom is asleep. And I like what Zechariah said when the angel nudged him. He was a fully awake man. He wasn't asleep. But the angel nudged him and he said, I awoke as a man out of sleep. But he wasn't sleeping. We are sleeping. We seek the presence of God when the presence of God is here fully and completely. It's not a matter of seeking his presence. It's a matter of becoming aware that he is, in fact, present. He will not leave you alone in the agona. You will come to know him in ways that you never imagined as he identifies with you in it. We're part of the flock of slaughter. And by so much, we're identified and associated with Jesus, God's paschal lamb, who was led to the slaughter, by whose suffering, however, many were justified, and many equals all. Isaiah 53.11, paired with Romans 5.18. For he was raised from the dead for our justification. This was the act of God's love, of Christ's love, of the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we operate in this dynamic state of love, we are hyper-conquerors through God who loved us and who demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, passively and actively, in active hostility with him, Christ died in Romans 5.8. We are hyper-conquerors through God who loved us because while we were yet his enemies, he reconciled us to himself through Christ's death. Romans 5.10-11. We are hyper-conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us so that we are justified now by his blood and much more saved from wrath by his life. Romans 5, 9, and 10. We are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us because God and Christ gave us the Holy Spirit by whom God's love is poured out in our hearts. In Romans 5, 5. We are hyper-conquerors because we are in him who loved us and who more than conquered evil. He transformed it into a supreme good. Our redemption required the Son of God being incarnated. It required him subsisting and operating in an assumed human nature, participating in his dying and resurrection and in his livingness, even now in the dynamic state of the love that God communicates to make his enemies his friends. We become passive and active participants in the divine solution for the problem of evil in history. That's a high calling. 
We become ministers of divine benevolence and beneficence in an evil age. We become agents and co-laborers of God in the redemption of history itself. Just as the scripture says in Ephesians 5, 14, wake up and get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ, who is the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, will shine on you. Be very attentive, says Ephesians 5, 15. Be very attentive, then, as to how you walk, not as unwise people or sleepwalkers, but as wise, alert and aware, intelligent and reasonable, responsible and in love, illuminated and inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's my expansion. And then 5.16 says, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. I say that to this we can only realistically conclude that merely created good, and created good is good, for there is the divine good, which is ineffable, indescribable, glorious, and there is the created good that God pronounced on his creation several times in Genesis 1. But merely created good is far exceeded by the good that came out of evil that God permitted. Consequently, the far more abundant good was willed by God in his love. God chose to create a world in which evil was permitted and to bring good out of evil, for that would be a greater good than merely created good. And because he loves us, he wills the greater good for us, which is the good that comes from evil, which was permitted. In this, we begin to see why the cross, why the way of the cross, why he took it, why we must. Because God's love is unconditional and unrestricted, He wills this love to be experienced by his creatures through grace and that this love be experienced by all of his creatures in all of their times. And we have come to know and to have confidence in the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in that one. 1 John 4.16 This love, expressed as it was and is in Christ Jesus, and especially in the event of his passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification, is a love that surpasses knowledge. Moreover, it's a love from which we can never be severed. We leave our exposition of Romans then, and we do today. This is a end of Romans exposition. We leave our exposition of Romans. It is hoped 
with this assurance. Even as we continue all day long, we continue all day long in this day that has an end. And as we await the day of eternity, which has no end, in which God will be all in all. Certainly in the light of this truth, and we have read Romans with the light on, this light on, the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Certainly then, in the light that's shown on Romans and through Romans, the light of this truth, and in the experience of this love, no biases may thrive. No prejudices may linger. No self-righteousness may remain. In the light of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, it is only reasonable that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the Adamic ontology with its inordinate ambitions, its excessive competitions, its unwise estimations of self versus others. In Romans the Epistle, the Apostle Paul brings his understanding, which is great, of the universal saving significance of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the universal redemptive and reconciling and rectifying influence of the cross of Christ brings it all to bear on the problem of disunity among the saints in Rome. So universality and unity come together. Universality and unity come together as joint themes, just as favor and union or beauty and bands in Zechariah 11.7. The solidarity in Christ that's expounded so richly in this epistle bears down on the walls of separation between the saints that have been erected by either a false gospel or more likely by an incomplete understanding of the gospel of God about his son. The apostle to the Gentiles then deploys the strategy that he described in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Though we live in these bodies of fragile flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not fragile, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the demolition of every high thing that would fly in the face of the objective knowledge of God. to bring down the fortresses that have been erected against the knowledge of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. The world has seen a Christendom that has been so distorted that it probably is right to say anything but that. But has the world yet seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of a crucified Savior? That's the light which we are to shine forth. For we, with open face, not veiled like Moses, totally open-faced, 
gaze as in a glass at the glory of God and are changed from one degree of glory to the next by the Spirit in whose presence there is liberty and freedom. So my hope is that this exposition of Romans in our own time will produce the same effect and be a power for unity among believers in Christ, a power to awaken unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ and those who believe to faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of God. And I pray that this will be a powerful incentive, at least for us here in this church and those who have heard it in our DVD groups and online, etc., at least to recognize our solidarity, our intimate association, our identification with Jesus Christ as reality itself, as reality himself. This is the end of Romans, the epistle exposition, reading Romans with the light on. But this by no means is the end of the insights that will derive from this study and the theological insights that we plan to be receptive to in the very near future. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. The very theme of this epistle is the faithfulness of God expressed in Jesus Christ. We thank you that over and over again for 145 meetings together, you've conveyed life by your word. You've conveyed freedom and peace by your word. You've granted incentive, illumination, insight, and inspiration. And in some measure, it's been transformative to us. In some measure, it's changed our hearts and minds as we view people, as we view the creation, as we view your son crucified, buried, raised, seated at your right hand in glory. May we come to realize that instead of seeking your presence, we ought to simply become aware that you are very present and certainly a very present help in time of need. And Father, I thank you for this congregation who has been so receptive and who have operated in love patiently, for love is patient. They have operated in love kindly, where love is kind. They have operated in the kind of love that hopes all things for all people, that believes when others do not believe, in a love that endures all things toward the objects of its love. And Father, in a love that never fails.